William Shakespeare wrote a number of historical plays about the kings of England from the 14th to 15th century, which later scholars named collectively the Henriad. Now stay with me this morning. I know it's July 4th weekend, and me bringing up the kings of England is a sore subject for us good patriots. But this Henriad, as it's come to be known, is one of the great epics of modern history. Over the course of four major plays, which are Richard II, Henry IV, Part I and II, and Henry V, and then a few minor ones in between, Shakespeare tells a grand, sweeping story of the rise and fall of the triumphs and defeats of England's past, all of which offer us a remarkable portrait of human nature and the human condition. Now, the Henriad, as I was thinking about this, to me, probably was to the Elizabethan Englishmen, like many of us in modern-day America look at the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a series of movies, you know, about Iron Man and Thor and Captain America. And even if you don't want to know, you have to know, because it's everywhere, on every corner of every shelf and every store. You're forced to know about this these stories. But they tell this one large overarching stories in all of these different movies and TV shows. And, and these, uh, these plays and Shakespeare's day were popular like that. They told uh, these stories of larger-than-life characters and everyone, even if they hadn't seen them, knew a little bit about these stories. And so, in this final play, Henry V, Shakespeare tells the story of Prince Henry Known in previous plays, we've seen him in other plays, and he's kind of a vain and salacious young man. He's not really admired or liked by anyone. He's known for spending all his time and money drinking and partying with his friends. But here in this final bit of the story, when Henry's father is on his deathbed, the king, it rattles Henry. And it changes him. And he realizes suddenly his unworthiness and that the crown which will soon be his will not be his by virtue of his own. In other words, nothing about him is worthy to bear that crown. And so he confesses to his dying father about it. You won it, wore it, kept it, and gave it me. That upon being crowned himself, Henry vows to finally, finally live a life worthy of England. A life worthy of the citizens of his country. And he confesses these words, The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. But now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods, but flow henceforth in formal majesty. Now, as you may know from the Lawrence Olivier movie or the Kenneth Branagh movie or, or if you're really up to date, the Timothy Chalamet movie on Netflix that came out a few years ago, Henry goes on to be one of the worthiest and noblest kings that England ever saw. And indeed, we see that his noble heritage did flow forth from him in formal majesty. 
Now, I bring all this up and tell this long winding story for this reason. Kent Hughes, the pastor, observes that something of this idea of living a life worthy of the blood of formal majesty, of being perhaps different now than the way you were born, something of that idea is present in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Like Henry before us, we find ourselves also, even us, heirs of a royal status that calls us away from any unworthy life we may have been living beforehand. And so, now, as citizens of heaven in Christ, Paul tells us we must live a life worthy of the Gospel. It really doesn't matter what's happened back here in the past for us. Now and going forward, we must live a life worthy of the citizenship of heaven which we now bear. Hughes paraphrases Shakespeare here. Let the tide of blood in me, not not my own blood, but the blood of Christ, the very life of Christ, may it now flow henceforth in my life in formal majesty. Now that said, we know that the worthy life, this heavenly citizenship, means that suffering will come. The life of faith is not an easy one. Is it? No. But the struggle we face now, the sorrow and suffering we face now, Paul tells us, leads us only towards salvation in Jesus. But before we get into our passage this morning, let's do what we always do. Just recall where we're coming from. Give a little context. Now you remember Paul's written this letter in prison chains. He's written it to show his gratitude to this congregation that's been faithful in all things. And Paul has laid it out on the line. Whether he now goes before the Roman tribunal and they let him go free and he's able to continue his gospel work, or whether he goes before the Roman tribunal and they sentence him to death and they execute him and he goes on to glory, either path he takes leads him, not to Rome, every road leads to Rome, they say, but for Paul, every road leads to Christ. Whether he goes on living, Christ. Whether he dies, Christ. And so, he was willing to suffer either or for the Gospel's advancement. And so today, Paul, who's told us his own story, his own ordeal, turns to the Philippians and consequently throughout the ages and through the Scriptures, he turns to us and invites us into this same hard, difficult Suffering road that is a life of worthy living. This is what it looks like for a Christian to be an heir to the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to live a life of suffering citizens of heaven. And so let's look at our passage this morning, these four short verses. Paul starts his transitional thought from where we were before, now addressing us in verse 27 with this. He says, just one thing, Philippian church. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the Gospel of Christ. That is, live according to the good news 
of Jesus that has changed you. Now, I know it's been a month since we've discussed some of this stuff, but do you remember that Philippi is not just any regular old city? Philippi, instead, is one of the most important outposts of the Roman Empire. Not only of the Roman Empire in Eastern Europe, but the Roman Empire as a whole. It's where all the great military heroes, all the commanders and centurions, where they go to retire. It's Langley, Virginia. And so unavoidably, Philippi is a place that is deeply political. It's a place where the Roman military, where Roman trade, where Roman culture were at the forefront of their life together as a community. So Paul's exhortation here, where he addresses the Philippians, he addresses them as citizens, but not of Rome, even though that's probably true for most people in the Philippian church. He says they are not citizens of Rome, but citizens of where? Citizens of heaven. Now that is trouble in the making. Biblical scholar Marcus Bachmuel says that Paul is challenging his Philippian friends here with a counter-citizenship. With a citizenship that undermines the Roman agenda. And the Roman agenda whose capital and seat of power are earthly. But for the citizen of heaven, the capital and seat of power are not earthly, but heavenly. And whose guarantor is not Nero, but Christ. Now this is a both powerful and important idea for us Christians who are born and raised here in America for us to remember on a weekend like this weekend, I think. Now, we are grateful for the privileges and freedoms of living here, aren't we? Thankful for that. We are grateful. They are blessings from God. To be able to come here without fear of uh, the police kicking in the door and rounding us up, we're thankful for that. To be able to know that we can go home on roads paid for by us, but that the government does, and we go to food or get food at restaurants that's regulated by the government so they're not poisoning it. I mean, we're thankful for these blessings, aren't we? And we can go home tonight, get in our, uh, get on our couches and watch the final two episodes of Stranger Things on Netflix, which is what so many of us will be doing, I'm sure. We can watch that and know that our, our internet will continue going because we have an electrical grid put in place by the government. So we're thankful for the blessings of living in the place that we are. We know many people sacrificed all they had so that we could enjoy something. We're thankful for that. And that's good. We know the Philippians, no doubt, were grateful too for the cultural blessings of their day. They're thankful for the roads. They're thankful for the aqueducts that brought clean water from Hundreds of miles away. They were thankful for those coins that had Caesar's face on it was legal tender all over the known world. And Paul himself, we remember, appealed to his Roman citizenship when it helped him in his gospel 
adventures. So we know the blessings of living in a nation state. We're thankful for those things. But brothers and sisters, let us never confuse the patronage, the benefactions of Lord Biden or Lord Trump, of Lord Kennedy or Lord Roosevelt, of Lord Lincoln or Lord Washington with the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Every knee in D.C., no matter how young or old and decrepit, every knee, whether liberal or conservative, whether leftist or right-wing, whether socialists or capitalists, whether Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Marjorie Taylor Greene, whether Bernie Sanders or Clarence Thomas, all will bow the knee to Jesus the King. You can be sure that the elephant and the donkey will in the end, even if they have to grit their teeth, will confess that only the lion and the lamb is worthy of rule. So Christian, as a citizen of heaven, not of America, not of Georgia, not of Atlanta, not of Gwinnett, as citizens of the kingdom of God, live your life worthy of what? The party? Live your life worthy of the partisanship? Live your life worthy of the culture? Live your life worthy of the the senator or governor? Live your life worthy of the Gospel. Folks, I'm sure that everyone in this room, every one of us, has friends, good friends that we love, that are either to the left of us, politically speaking, or to the right of us, politically speaking. Some of our friends think we're not revolutionary enough. Some of our friends think we're not traditional enough. But let me remind you, as your pastor, and somebody that cares for the sake of your soul, that your calling as a Christian is this, to live a life worthy of the Gospel. That's what I care about for myself and for you. For us as a church. That we live a life worthy of the Gospel no matter whose name we check off in November. Like the Philippians, our neighbors are not going to like that. They'll want us to make this side into our enemies or this idea into our foe. They'll want us to draw lines in the sand and to give ultimatums with people in our lives over how we think of policies and bills and procedures But Paul says to this instead, whether I come or I see you or am absent, I will hear about this. I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That you are in one accord. That you are contending together for the faith of the Gospel not being frightened in any way by your opponent. What does it look like to be a citizen of heaven? What does it look like to live a life worthy of the Gospel? Paul answers clearly. It's to stand firm in one spirit. 
There are no aisles to cross in the Christian church. It's to live in one accord. It's to contend, not some over here, not this clique over here, this faction over here. It's to contend together for the faith in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. One Spirit, one accord, contending together for one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The Holy Spirit unites us into one fellowship together. Maranatha is one fellowship together. And we live out our faith. We contend for the Gospel of Jesus Christ together. As citizens of heaven, as Christians at this church this morning, know this. This is your civic duty. First and foremost, that's where your primary citizenship is with the Lord. And so this is our primary goal. Be patriotic, first and foremost, to the land of heaven this morning. Love the Lord your God and serve one another and all the other stuff will fall into place. In verse 28, Paul reminds us that the stakes are very real. Living a worthy life this way will make us pilgrims in our own homeland. It'll make us foreigners and strangers and immigrants in the eyes of those around us. We may have been born here. We may have grown up on Main Street, went to the same schools, worked the same jobs, ate at the same restaurants, shopped at the same stores, but they will look at us as if we were more alien than E.T. himself. We won't be accepted by our country anymore if we live this way. Let me make that clear. It's not an easy road to travel. (laughs) Now folks, this was the passage that we came to naturally. I didn't plan this out ahead of time on July 4th weekend to spoil our mood. By pledging allegiance to the Lord Jesus and not to the Lord Caesar, Philippians were looked down upon and castigated and persecuted. And rest assured, Christian, if you take your faith seriously, if you live a life that's worthy of the Gospel by loving Jesus and serving sinners, you won't be welcome in the circles of power and privilege for much longer. You'll be resisted by them. You'll be hated by them. And that's not going to be easy. It's not easy. But Paul comforts them, the Philippians, and he comforts us by saying, do not be, a fright- do not be frightened in any way by your opponents. It's a scary feeling for us to, to follow Jesus and to put not only His cross on our back, which is a heavy burden, but knowing right next to that cross, we've now painted a target on our back too. It's frightening when your obedience to Him puts you at odds 
with your own culture, where you feel most at home. But I want you to remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor in a small church in Ephesus, an equally not easy city to have a church in, and a not easy culture to be ministering in. This is what he said to Timothy, who was struggling, whose people were struggling. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He hasn't let us be frightened by any opponent, whether it's a corporation or an electoral body. We're not to be frightened. He's given us instead a spirit of power, of love, and of sound judgment. Don't be ashamed, therefore, of the testimony about our Lord or me as a prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the Gospel. Relying on what? Relying on the power of God. Not the police, not the firemen, not the mayor. Rely on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This is pre-Revolutionary War. It is pre-Jurassic Park. Before time began, you were a citizen of heaven. And this has now been made evident. It's clear through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light, to accessibility, to where we can reach out and touch it through the Gospel. He goes on in our passage. To say our life of suffering and service, of being outsiders by our obedience, is a sign of two things. It's a sign of the destruction of the greedy and violent rulers of Rome and America and every other country alike, but for those who strive to live worthy lives of repentance and love. This is a sign that we are being saved through Jesus. Our suffering, our sorrow is a sign that we are being saved. Now folks, if this has all been difficult up until this point, we really need to strap in for this last one. For these last two verses, where Paul tells us, it has been granted to you. It's been gifted to you. Here's what God's gift is for you. On Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for Him. Mm. Not only is it a gift that you're being saved, and we all know that's a gift. Saved from this world and its sickness and power and violence and death. Everybody can see how that's a gift. But Paul says it's a gift to also suffer for Christ. 
Karl Barth, the great reformed theologian from Switzerland in the 20th century, puts it this way. The grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by another grace. By the grace of being permitted. <laughs> That's a funny way to say that. The grace of being allowed. Allowed! As if it were a great privilege. And it is. The grace of being permitted to suffer for Him. Of being permitted to walk in the way of Christ with Christ Himself to the perfection of fellowship with Him. And here's what he means by that. It's one thing to believe in Jesus and to know His benefits from afar. To be blessed by Him in all the ways that we're blessed. Some of which we've talked about this morning. That's one thing. But to suffer for Jesus, who suffered for us, is to be so wrapped up in Him. So tangled up in His life that your life and His mystically become one. His righteousness is suddenly yours who is not righteous. His eternality is suddenly yours who is dying. His glory is yours who is full of sin and regret. And His joy is yours because His life is now yours. And so once you're all entwined in Jesus, Paul is sure that the kind of struggle that he's going through in verse 30, we'll go through it too. Maybe not in the same way. We're not all going to be carted off to house arrest. But in our own ways, we will struggle and suffer in and with and for Christ. But Christian, the road of that suffering, the path of that struggling, that is the way of salvation. It's not for nothing that Jesus calls it a narrow road. But just as God gives us grace to believe, and we know He's given us grace to believe, so will He give us grace to suffer. Just as He's called us to believe, while we were still enemies with God and wanted nothing to do with Him, and He opened our eyes and we, came, we couldn't do anything but come to faith, so will, when we suffer, He will give us grace there too. I like how John Calvin passionately writes about this in, in one of his commentaries. He says, oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits. If we could learn to see even suffering as a benefit from God. Not as a thing into itself, but as a sign that something better is coming. What progress, he says, would be made in the doctrine of godliness? What is more certain than that is the highest honor of divine grace that we suffer for His name? whether reproach or imprisonment, 
or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, he says, he decorates us with his own insignia. But more will be found in this life who would rather order God and his gifts to be gone rather than embrace the cross readily that is offered to them. Woe then to our stupidity, he says. Woe then to our short-sightedness for choosing 70 years of life being kind of okay. For electing for that instead of the way of suffering that leads us to eternal vindication in Jesus. Oh, if we only knew the medal of honor that awaits us when we suffer for Christ. Oh, if we only knew the vindication and the victory that is ours in Jesus. Oh, if we only knew of the happiness and holiness and the heaven that awaits us, not in the boardroom or the barroom or the bedroom, not in brunch with the rich and famous, not with dinners with the powerful and mighty, but in this simple supper of bread and wine, of flesh and blood poured out for us. Come to Jesus this morning, church. Come to Jesus. As He suffered and died for you, this table that's a gift and a grace and all its mysterious nature, this table assures you that you will suffer for Him as He suffered for you, but you will live in Him because He died for you. Both now as Augustine reminds us, here in the city of man, but one day soon, and the, inter- the eternal, imperishable, everlasting city of God, where our true citizenship lies. Let's pray. O Lord our God, help us in our frailty and fear. When trials come, that Jesus be our mighty fortress. Our citizenship is in His kingdom, Lord. Help us to suffer well. Save us, Father, for Him as He suffered to save us. For it's the name of Jesus, our King and Your Son, that we pray and come to this table this morning. Amen.